pray together. Father, we, we do pray, Lord, what we just sang, Lord, that you would restore our soul, that you'd revive our hearts, that we would love you more intently, that we would live for you, that all of our lives, Lord, would reflect your glory and your honor. Lord, that you would, you would change us increasingly to that end. And so, Lord, now as we open your word, speak to us today. Lord, we thank you for this incredible privilege we have to worship. Now as we open your word, help us to worship you as we hear from you. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would, turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. That's where we'll be this morning. It'll be on the screens. There's also a Bible ahead of you. Um, as we as you turn there, as we um, as we get into that, now somebody somebody maybe in the room when we got these church planners up here, I've been around church a little bit, so there's somebody in the room that they were like, "How are we going to pay for that? How's that going to work? Like, how are we going to do this?" And you get all like scared and nervous. So I'm going to tell you something about our finances here. You guys want to know about money? Anybody? All right. So I'll tell you a little bit about money. I don't talk about money ever. So I'm going to talk about money right now. So, um, so how this works with our church planters is we give $12,000 a year to every planter. And so if the missions board helps direct those funds, that's in our budget. And so we do that every year. And so these guys are going to get $1,000 a month from us. Now, the beauty of, of Zach and the beauty of Britton is they're, they're pretty amazing guys in the sense of, uh, in, the, in the Bible, we call them tent makers in that sense. And so they feel called to that. Britain is literally a tent maker, except it's, he's a house builder, but in that sense, like he actually constructs well, and uh, his business card is in the back. And so that's what Britain does, and uh, that's going to help supplement some of that, and hopefully as they grow in offerings and all those things that money will come in to, if he chooses, to be full-time in that regard. And so there's a process of getting to that end. And then Zach is also um, a tent maker, but t- he doesn't construct literally at all, right, Zach? And, uh, and uh, um, we help him with that. And so, but Zach is also engaged in, uh, in, in a way that God has provided resources through uh, a secondary income for him. And so he's going to be doing that in that sense. As a church, we're in a place where we have about $600,000 in the bank account. About 300000 of that is reserved to designated things that have been specifically given to. And then there's about another 300000 that is... Um, um, some the board has set aside for like a rainy day and others is to help kind of pay the bills and all that. Right now, budgets to, or to gifts to expenses. I've got this little philosophy, just so you know, my dad taught me this. I'm just a farm, a ho- like a hog farmer's son. That's just like who I am. You don't spend money you don't have, right? And so um, we've spent almost exactly what's been given to what's been taken in. And so over the last few years, I'm really confident in our ability to steward God's resources. And so, just so you know, if you're wondering how we're doing, we're good, right? So praise God for that. All right? And so, and uh, if you'd give more money, we'd be better. So let's go. We got work to do. Open up those checkbooks. I never say this stuff. I'm done. So, all right. Ryan. Okay. If you'll stand with me this morning as we read God's word. Colossians 3, 1 through 12 reads, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. 
Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, all sexual sins. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, two, you, in these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Father, would you speak to us now as we look into your word, expose the truths that we might be transformed to your very own image. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So as we look at this passage, I don't know if you've ever been um, curious about this, but, but if you had to say, what is the, what's the big, main, most important thing for the Christian? Like, what's the, if, if you know one thing, what's the one thing you gotta know to live this thing out? I, I would say it's found in this text. And that one thing is that if you don't know it, you're, you're never gonna be able to really live it. And that is, how do I kill sin and how do I live righteously? The Christian life, without knowing that, we will just wander, guessing and hoping, and we'll kind of try to live in some moral way. And so we'll take these kind of old sayings like, um, right, Christians don't drink and don't chew and don't date girls that do, right? That's that old, I don't know if you ever heard that. Uh, like, it's all these external things, and so we'll have these external things that we try to stay away from. But, but the question is, how do I get rid of this stuff in me I can't stand? Now, I've been, I'm, I'm old enough now, and I have enough kids that I can definitively say that what I once thought sin was and what it is to me now is far different than when I first became a believer. And, and how it's different for me now than it was when I first became a believer was I, maybe I was kind of like, Christians don't do these five things. But then I began to see my own heart. And there were these things in it I didn't like very much. I had, I had some anger. Am I the only one? Did anybody else have any anger in their heart? Have you ever seen that? You come out? I've seen it. Donnie's a Cubs fan. And so uh, I got anger toward you, brother. And so... Uh, and so so we, 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 the anger comes up, but, but really underneath all of that stuff, there's these deeper things. And these deeper things are like my pride. Because why did I get mad? Because somebody shot at my pride. And you hit my pride, man, and I want to punch you in the face. And the selfishness, like you got in my way and obstructed me from my, what I wanted. And so I talked bad about you and I brought you down to others because that would make me feel better about myself. And so my sin was, it's, it's a little more complex than just these external things. Anybody with me? Say amen, right? Yeah. 
All right, so this morning, a little audience participation. We've started good, but we're going to keep going with some. So remember, we've got this amen right on. That's what I'm talking about. I'm still waiting for that's what I'm talking about. And so, so just, you know, anything in agreement. So I'm going to make some statements. If you agree with them, just, just you know, say amen, say whatever you want to say. So do you believe, do you believe that there is a narrow way? Do you believe? All right. Do you believe that, that Jesus was clear that he wants to discipline our hearts? You do? You believe that? Do you believe that Jesus wants us to reject certain things in our life? Do you think that everything is fair game? Do you, okay. do, do you believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? Do you believe that the Christian needs to be redirected, reminded, turned, rebuked, loved? Yeah, the amen wasn't very strong in the last service on that one either, right? Like, we need to be turned, we need to be rebuked, we need to change course and move directions because the reality in our life is, is some of us know there's a narrow way, we all said amen to it, and so there's this way that we're supposed to walk, but some of us aren't walking down the narrow way, right? And we're walking around on chairs, right? We're walking around, and everybody knows, like, hey, Ryan should be on the stage right now. But he's just walking around on chairs. I'm going to get close to you, man. You don't have to move stuff. I got this. He's walking around. Everybody's looking at me, right? Everybody knows I'm off course. But, but here's the thing. Angry person in the room. Everybody knows you're off course. Everybody knows you're not walking down the narrow road. Everybody but you. Or maybe not. See, it's clear that I'm not on the right place that I'm supposed to be. I'm good. You guys got to get him. It's so Everybody knows that I'm off course. And, and in our own lives, we know that we're off course. We know that we get off path. But the reality is, is that we just have resolved that I don't have to get rid of this stuff. And I can live off course and I can do this. But this, this text is so clear. It doesn't honor God to live off course. That he has, a, he has a pathway for us to live righteous and holy. And when we find ourselves off course... We need to get redirected back to that way in which he has called us. Now, this text and the one last week, I'm not going to lie, these are probably two of the most impacting texts that I've ever read in my own Christian life. God has used these in great ways to speak about my own spiritual formation and how to think about my relationship with the Lord. So let's look at them together, all right? So, so how this works is, is first, we need to establish a clear direction, and we see this, this clear direction. So the context of the passage is they, they, the, the Colossian believers, um, Paul's going to kind of rebuke them in chapter 2 and subtly and say, you, you're going after all these foolish things that are entrapping you in your faith. And there's this way, there's this path that you go that's not going to lead to entrapments, but it's going to be freeing. And so what he was saying is, you're moving back to the law. You're moving back to these religious rituals. And these religious rituals aren't what frees you. You're actually becoming entrapped by them. So what you need to do is you need to be free. And so in Colossians 3, he begins to explain how are you free. And so how we're free is we first establish a clear direction. So there's a condition as this begins, right? If then, if then you have been raised with Christ. And so if you have been raised with Christ, if you were dead, now you're alive. If you were blind, now you see. If you were lost and now you're found, anybody, were you? Not, now, like, so if that's you, like if you were lost, if, right? If, if you didn't have Jesus, 
So if you've been raised, if you have new life in Jesus, this is what you ought to do. This is how you ought to live. This is, what, this is how you, 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 you move forward with the Christian life. It says, what? Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand. Meaning, really what he's saying is your desires. So what we desire, we seek after. So he says, seek the things that are above, right? Where Christ is seated at the right hand. Now, whenever right hand is established, when it's said, what it means is he said that Jesus is a place of, of power next to the Father, and he's, a, he's in a position of privilege. No one else gets that seat of power. No one else gets that seat of privilege because Jesus is the only one who deserves it, who, who has done the work to achieve it. So Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, meaning that he has come, he died, he was buried, he defeated death, he was resurrected, he defeated death, hell, and the grave for us. Jesus is exalted to on high, and he is seated at the highest place. And so now, what do I do? I seek the one who is living and risen and resurrected to guide and lead my life. So it says, seek, like desire the things that are above. And then it says, to value to set your mind on things above, not on things of earth. And so this new value system is I value heavenly things. I value him. I value Jesus. And so it's this above and below. The things above I value, the things below are not of value to me anymore now that I've been raised with Christ. So then we, we seek and set. So why do we do this? Well, we seek and set our minds on Jesus. It says in the text, if then you have been raised with Christ, so I've been resurrected with him, I have a new life. Once I was dead, now I'm alive. We celebrated last week in baptism, right? This watery grave that I once was alive, now I'm buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. That I've been set free in him, I'm resurrected, so I, I want this. I have new life in Christ. It says in verse three, that for you have died and your life is hidden in Christ. Literally meaning that, that in Christ, he is the one that I am hidden in. My sins are covered by. He is, my, he is the one who advocates to me before, for me to the Father. That I am hidden in Jesus. That it's no longer on my account, but it is on his account. That I'm in right standing with the Father. I have new life in Christ. And then last we see in this text, in this one through four, is there's this future glory when we appear. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Meaning that he is my hope, my resurrected hope, that when I appear with the Father in glory, I, it will be because of Jesus. This is, this is what he has done. So what this changes in our hearts is I want to seek my, I, I want to seek him. I want to set my eyes on him. Now I'm going to give you the conclusion right now. And so if you want to leave after this, you can. And so so the conclusion is this, that the issue each of us faces in our day-to-day -day life is, where, is what we seek and we set our eyes on. What we seek, what we set, it defines who we are, how we live, and how we honor the Father. And so what happens when we seek Jesus and we set our eyes on him is we grow in our love for him. And our love for him pushes out our sin, and it brings righteousness. So how that works is like this. For me, I don't desire to dishonor him in my sin anymore. I once did, but Jesus died for me. He is resurrected on high. Everything I have, everything I will have for all time and eternity is in him. 
And to ever think about going back to the ways of dishonoring my flesh I once did, it grieves my soul. And I want to live my life with a compassionate heart because there's been one who's compassionate towards me. I want to live my life with kindness because there's one who has been kind toward me. I want to live my life with meekness because there was one who was meek toward me. I want to live my life with graciousness because grace has been poured out upon me. See, seeking and setting has everything to do with who we are becoming. If we do not seek him, if we do not set our eyes on him, we will never become like him. So, so how does this work? We, we live in a day, and we referred to this earlier with church planning. We live in a day that some, there's a book recently written called The Great Evangelical Recession. We live in a day where we see this major decline. Even the largest denominations in our nation are showing declines in membership, declines in baptism, declines in growth. And we see this season of recession. And so we have this talk, and these are books I've read my entire Christian life. People have given them to me in a seminary. People gave them to me on my own. I found them and found old books and new books, and I've read lots of books on this subject, and it's the subject of revival. And the subject of revival is really what is maybe the greatest thing about our, our legacy in Christianity. And if you have any spare time, just read on the revivals of the Moravians or the First Awakening, Second Awakening, the, the, the Prayer Revival of 1857 in New York and how these revivals spread and these miraculous things happened as people consecrated their hearts to the Lord. But I believe more than ever we need revival in our land. Anybody with me? We need revival in our nation, and, and we, we amen this, and, and I, I, mean, I amen it with you. I mean, when I was 21 years old, I began to pray you know, frequently this prayer, like, Lord, would you let me see revival in my day? I, I want to see revival in my life, and maybe early it was just I wanted to see how miraculous and amazing that would be, selfishly. But I think even deeper in me now is it, it really is our, our hope in our land. We need, we need revival. Now, didn't, I didn't say we need revival, right? What revival is just new life in Jesus. I said revival, meaning that the Christian world would wake up and be revived once again to the fullness of the Lord. I think there's, there's three things that happen when revival happens in a heart. When revival happens in the heart of a man or a woman, there is, and I don't think without these three things it can happen, and you can't, it's hard, to, it's hard for me to even say this because it's like you can't, you can't force revival to happen in your heart, but you can make conditions good for it. You can till the soil for God to do a good work in your life. One of those, one of the three is first, that, that we come to a place of desperate dependence on our resurrected Savior. Desperate dependence on our resurrected Savior we stop believing that in some way that my goodness, my pedigree, my Americanness, my church heritage, my parents, anything else brought me to the show but Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And I am needy for him and I come to my life in a place of post- a posture in my life of bowing down before him and saying, Jesus, I need your fullness in my life. And when we come to this place of bowing, I need you, 
We move to another thing of, of Holy Spirit, I need your indwelling presence to move out of me in my life. I don't want to live alone. I don't want to live without you. I want to be moved and shaped by you, Spirit, that indwells me. And the third, I think, is that we begin to pray. We begin to pray diligently and frequently for our own life, for those around us, for the lost world, for God to move and work. I just ask you this morning, when's the last time that you said, Lord, start revival in my life? Revive my heart. When's the last time you said to the Lord, I am desperately dependent on you. Without you, I have no hope. Jesus, you are everything to me. Even to a place where maybe, maybe even the Stoics of us would become emotional. Because if you think about it long enough, I don't know how it can't be overwhelming what he has done. And then we move to a place of, oh, Holy Spirit, would you use me in my, would you use me in this world, in my life? Would you, would your power overwhelm me? Would it move out of me into the realms of others in this world? We begin to weep and cry for our sons and our daughters and our nation and our land and our neighbors and our cousins and our second cousins and everybody in our lives begin to pray in desperation for that. And I mean, I'm, I'm just here to tell you, you can, we, can, we could have a sob story right now. We could talk about all the bad things going on in our day. I just don't think it's, that's worth our conversation as much as bowing before our resurrected Savior, desperately depending on the filling of his Holy Spirit and asking him to move out of our lives and praying to that end. Amen. Or we can preserve the past. Some of you in this room, you're, you're preservationists. I am in some ways. I love my heritage. I grew up in a church of about 40 people. I remember one Sunday we had 97. It was like, whoa! Like, this is crazy. My grandma had to move her pillow over. Like, I mean, it was crazy. You know, I, I, some other kid used my coloring book. It was terrible. Like, it was the worst Sunday of my life. I mean, I remember that. I remember those days of, of singing hymns and, you know, my uncle leading worship, and I remember those things. But, you know, as much as I remember the quaintness of that day, I also remember that my uncle split the church in half over the kind of songbooks that we ordered. I mean, craziness. And here's the thing. Today, yesterday, 1950, 1948, 1850, you can look back at any time in history. And I'm just going to tell you this. I've traveled the world a little bit too, and so I, I know something about this. People are people. Humanity is humanity, and brokenness is brokenness. And we're never going to escape it in this world. That's why I was in the church in China training church planners years ago in, in, in 2010 and asked a question like, what is one of the things that you really struggle with? And they said, you know, sometimes in our church plans, some of the pastors try to take house church members from other house churches. I'm like, What? Like, not the, this perfect idea of the house church in China. You guys are awesome. You have it all together. And you're stealing church members from houses. You don't even have buildings. This is crazy. And so I, I, hear, hear me say, I think some of our history is rich and it's beneficial. But God is not dead. 
He has not stopped moving. He never will stop moving. His kingdom is coming forward. He is moving in new and powerful ways in our day and time. And as we, and this is my opinion, as we don't look to new methods, but we look at the most ancient methods in the scriptures, we see his kingdom come abundantly. And how we see it come abundantly is just these simple things like, I am going to be a person consecrated to Jesus. I'm going to rest on his resurrected power in my life. I'm going to be Holy Spirit dependent in my life. And I'm going to pray, 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 pray. Anytime in history, what you'll see when the church is doing well is the church is doing those three things. And I could add more. They believe the infallibility of the word of God. And we could go through other things. But trusting in our resurrected Savior, believing in the power of the Holy Spirit, desperately depending on him to move forward to me in desperate in prayer. Those are the things in all time and eternity we want to replicate over and over and over and over and over and over again. We preserve the rich history of our faith found in the scriptures. Second thing that we see in this text is calling us to is to aggressively deal with sin. So we establish clear direction, then we aggressively deal with sin in our lives. So we put to death that which is earthly in you. And so it's going to go through three lists of sins. One of them you might not see, but there's three lists of sins in this text. And it's in 5 through 11. First list is a sin of aggression. And, uh, aggression toward another to harm them. So it's sexual immorality, porneia, impurity, fornication, uncleanliness, passion, habitual lust, evil desire, habitual lust personified, teetering on perversion, and covetousness, idolatry, wanting what is not yours. The Bible is clear on what lust and sexuality is, is intended for, and that's one man, one woman for life. And in that relationship, it is appropriate to desire. Outside of that relationship, it is inappropriate to desire because it harms the person desiring and it harms the one being desired and God loves us and desires for us not to be harmed and has created healthy boundaries in how he's created us in this world so he says these the sexual sin it's is pervasive and really at the root of this is the person who engages in this is a person who thinks more of himself than he does others or herself than she does others there's no self-control exalting of self while harming others and harming self. It is a dangerous, dangerous sin that rips lives apart. And I say that on the authority of God's word, and I say it on the authority of countless people I've sat with and seen it rip apart their lives. And we see it all around us in our culture we see it with a movie executive this week, beloved TV dad, famous conservative talk show hosts, network CEOs, dads, moms, community leaders, pastors. There ain't nobody getting outside of this. It is pervasive in our culture and it's killing people. And so I just say to you this morning, put to death that one because it's going to ruin you. And we, we must, must be a great, anybody with me on this? Come on. It, it, is, it is one we must put to death because it destroys then it transitions not just to sins of aggression toward another in sexuality, but sins of attitudes and actions. So put to death 
anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, anger, this disposition that we possess, wrath, extreme outbursts and fury, malice, a desire to harm or a longing for others to be harmed by others, slander, to speak in a way to injure or harm someone's reputation, obscene talk, lying, abusively speaking to others. So it says put to death and then the text says put off the old self, Why? Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. God poured his wrath out upon Jesus for what? Sin. Specifically, these sins, what this text says, the wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus because you wanted to have sex with someone that wasn't your wife. The wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus because of our anger and our obscenity and our belittling and our criticism and our hurting and our punishing others so we could be relieved from our own pains and hurts. The wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus because of our sin. Sexual immorality is not a mistake, it is a sin. Anger is not just something that happens, kind of who I am. It is a sin. And it, it, it put Jesus on the cross. And the beatings, and the pain, And the suffering that was due us because of our sin was laid upon him. Sin is serious. And this text exalts that we must put these things to death, not go, well, I don't do it as much as I used to. I'm not quite angry as I used to be. We come to a place where we recognize that it hurts the very heart of God. It goes against the very nature of the one who made us. We move to a place in our life, I don't, I don't want, I don't want to do the things that I once did because they hung my Savior on the cross. And it grieves my soul to think of the pain he went through for me. And there's another set of sins. So it says, put off the old self. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. This defines our former life, that, that, we, are, that we have an old life. We're being made new. We have a future life with him. Then this other list of sins, it's not as clear, but it's here. It says, there's no distinction between those in Christ, Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave or free. Just so you know, we've always been having issues with people that aren't like us. Racial inequality, it's not a new thing. It's a really, really old thing. And it's something that has plagued our world forever. This text actually takes it a little bit bigger than race. Greek and Jew, ethnicities, circumcised and uncircumcised, religious heritage, barbarian or Scythian, cultural heritage, slave or free, any economic background. And what this says is that through Jesus, we can all be one in him, that and this is what revival looks like. It looks like the, the, the Muslims, the, the, the Muslim um, priest or hierarchy, they, they come to a place and they stand on the stage someday and said, I realized that I wasn't following the one and only true God and I came to know Jesus and he becomes my brother. And it, and it looks like 
whoever it might be, whatever leader, whatever religion, that, that in Jesus that we can all be one. It doesn't matter what race, creed, color, background, religious pedigree, that in Jesus we can be one when we repent and we turn to him in faith, that we are a large family that spans the globe, that spans ethnicities, religious heritage, cultural backgrounds, economic statuses, and then in Christ, it says at the end, Christ is all and in all, that Jesus really is everything, and we can live for him, and he can define at every level how we relate to others. And so the sin in that would be that we would see differences, and we would belittle or look down at someone for any of those reasons, but we would posture ourselves well and be hopeful that Christ might be their savior as he is mine. And they might become a part of this great family of God that I have been brought into undeservingly. And so the text, it conditions, and this is it, we'll finish. So last, the text calls us to embrace a new life. To embrace a new life. So we see establish clear direction, aggressively deal with sin, and embrace the new life. So then it says, put on as God chosen ones. Put on, and so here are the things we put on. Compassionate heart, sensitivity, concern for others. Kindness, we work towards someone else's benefit. Humility, that we live without arrogance, that we're selfless. Meekness, that we're gentle in attitude. My word, harshless in how we deal with others. Patience, that we have emotional calm in the face of being provoked or in trial. And then this, he calls us holy and beloved that we have a new identity in him and we embrace it and we live in it. So how does this work in our lives? Well, I said it earlier, I'll say it again, how it works for me and how this text, I believe, speaks to us is I have a savior who has been compassionate to me and I don't deserve his compassion. He has had a sensitivity and concern for me in light of my insensitivity, and at times, me not being concerned about him at all. I have a savior who has been kind. He has worked for my benefit in a way that I am completely undeserving of. He has shown humility that he would send his one and only son to this world to die the death that I deserved. I don't know anything more humble in Philippians 2 says this is the very essence, the miracle of what Jesus has done, that he humbled himself to die on a cross for us. He's been meek toward me. He's been gentle in attitude, harshless to me. And he has been patient. He has been calm with me at times that I am completely undeserving of being patient toward See, I believe that when we seek Jesus and when we set our eyes on him and we see him for who he is, we see his kindness and his patience and his grace and his care and his meekness and his humility and his compassionate heart. When we see all of those things and then lust pops up in our head, anger pops up in our heart. If we're seeking him and setting our eyes on him, I think what happens is it's like fire, it's like water on the fire of our flesh. I said, no, I don't want to do that. 
because I love Jesus and I wanna show compassion and care for those around me. I wanna treat every person with dignity. I don't wanna lust after this. I don't wanna go after that. I don't wanna have obscene talk and abusive language toward this person. I don't wanna be critical. I don't wanna be harming. I don't wanna be these things because I don't honor my savior because that's not what he's been to me. And to look like Jesus is to look like a person of compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience because this is who he is. So how do we do it? We, we proclaim this gospel into our hearts. We seek and set our eyes on him. And as we, as we do this, we recognize that Jesus is better than my anger. Jesus is better than my flesh. Jesus is better than all these things. And I want to press my life into him. And I want to seek him. And I want to set my eyes on him. And so in the text, it says that we have been raised, given new life, chosen, holy, and beloved. And I think those reasons enough are reasons to seek him and to set our eyes on him, to have clear direction, to put to death that which is earthly in us, and last, to, to allow him to permeate every area of our life. I want to read this text to us again as we conclude, but I'm going to read it a little bit different this time. And we're going to read it kind of just my own personal prayer. And I'm going to put I in it instead of you. And... If you agree, you can just say it to the Lord as I read it with you. If then I have been raised with Christ, I want to seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Lord, help me to set my mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For I've died, and my life is hidden with you, Jesus, in God. When Christ, who is my life, appears, then I also will appear with him in glory. Lord, help me to put to death what is earthly in me. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Lord, I know that on account of these things, your wrath is coming. Lord, in these I once walked when I was living in them. But now I must put them away, all of them. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from my mouth. Help me not lie to lie to others. Lord, you have put off the old self with its practices. Lord, help me to put on the new self, which is being renewed in your knowledge after the image of my creator. Lord, in you there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Jesus, you are all and in all. So Lord, help me then as your chosen one, one of your chosen ones. Lord, holy and beloved, put on me compassionate, a compassionate heart, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Father, Father, would you help us to embrace the Christian life in its fullness, the narrow road, the pathway you've called us down. Help us to seek you by, by putting our, our eyes on your word. Help us to seek you by asking your Holy Spirit to fill us. Help us to set our eyes on the full and completed work that you have done, Jesus. Help us to desire you and value you above everything else. 
And as we do, help us to desire less the sins of our flesh, our pride, our selfishness. Lord, help us to no longer desire the sins of our flesh, the sins of our mind, but Lord, that we would desire to live righteously and holy in our day and time. Lord, spark revival in our lives individually and collectively together. Lord, help us. Or for the person in the room today that has never given their life to you. Jesus, I pray that you would help them to repent this morning of their sin and to place their faith in you. Or for the, the Christian in the room who's off course, whose sins define them more than their dependence on their resurrected Savior, their desperation for the power of the Holy Spirit, their dependence in prayer. Lord, would you take these old fires and light them in our church and in our lives They'd be set ablaze for your kingdom, your glory, your honor, your renown in our day and our time. Lord, we need you. So as we sing this song, help us to sing it to you. If there's anything anyone needs to deal with, Lord, help them respond well where they are at these altars. So I ask in Jesus' name, amen. If you'll stand, we're gonna sing this last song. These altars are open for you to come and kneel and pray as God would lead you.